on the topic of evil. All right. What did we talk about yesterday? Creation. Creation. And things are created because God wills them and says that they are so, right? They're not, God doesn't turn things into things, right? So we spoke about the material and the form of things. So there are two questions in Judaism about evil, broadly speaking, and they're interrelated questions, which means that how you answer one determines how you approach the second question. And what I want to do is highlight the difference in these approaches. Um, And depending on how the class goes, maybe we can address how they can both be true, but I'm not really convinced that we're gonna go that far. My goal is just simply that we're aware that there are these two very different approaches to the subject of evil in Judaism. Now, before we go forward, we have to remember that in Judaism, everything that's real is because God wills it to be so, right? God makes it be that case. There is nothing in reality that um, can be attributed to anything other than God. Right? In other words, if I make, if I make um, this cup out of paper, as much as I have control over how the cup turns out, the paper also has some influence as well, right? If the paper is higher quality paper, it'll be a better paper cup. But if it's lower quality paper, it'll be not as good of a quality cup. Right? If I am educating students, the quality of the education is not entirely up to me. It also depends on the students, right? Does it make sense? Um, Did God make the world out of anything? No. So is any aspect of the world, can God say, well, that's that's because of this other thing, this other consideration, it's not really my fault, or God has to take blame for it all? That's what I'm asking you. I'm not asking if you guys explain stuff, but in terms of just ascribing causal responsibility, who has to take responsibility for everything? Hashem. We're going to bracket questions of free will because it's not the topic of the class. Um, free will doesn't contradict what I've said. It just makes it more complicated to understand. Okay. So question number one is, did God create evil? Or another way of asking that question is, does evil exist? Correct. We're going to get to that. The other question is, if evil does exist, or in other words, if God did create it, then the question is, why did he create it? Now. Wait, why does doesn't exist the same thing? Well, because... As we discussed yesterday, everything exists simply because God makes it be so. So if God didn't create evil, then evil would not exist. If evil exists, that's because God created it. Right? Yeah. Okay. Remember, if God made something into reality, then evil maybe can come from that primordial stuff. There are religions and, and different ways of looking at reality that do believe that God is not a creator in the sense we spoke about yesterday, and they just work out evil by saying, well, evil has to do with, you know, if you're, if you're a painter and you're working with poor quality paint, what do you expect? Okay, also differentiate something and something if it's the same thing? Yeah. Are we talking about human evil or like natural disasters? I am, I am n- not going to differentiate. differentiate. Okay. 
but I am going to discuss what I mean by evil, broadly speaking. Because I want to keep the class in the broad strokes of the idea rather than get bogged down in specific details. So I want us to understand kind of the, the, the way of thinking about the issue rather than like specific information, oh, this idea or that idea. So now what I want to do is actually start with the second question first and explain why the second question is a question. So the second question is why would God create evil? Of course, that second question presupposes you've already established God has created evil. Now, is it a fair question to ask, why did God create trees? And I'm going to argue for the purposes of this class that that is not a fair question to ask why God created trees. Trees. So like, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like, so is that why it's not a fair question? No. All right. <laughs> no. It's not a fair question because if we go back to yesterday's class, what constraints is God working with when he makes reality be what it is? So now if you ask yourselves why does somebody do something, you're generally explaining their behavior under certain constraints. You're saying, since there's a certain end in mind and these are the constraints, therefore, this is the way they did it. So, um, why did a person take this particular route? Well, because they wanted to get to this place and that was, to their mind, the fastest way to get there. If you have somebody, in this case God, who doesn't have any constraints on what they do, okay, um, and you also have no basis for assuming um, a, a, a like-mindedness. In other words, I would not assume that on a specific level any of your goals are any the same as my goals. That would be foolish. In a, in a broad sense, I would assume that things that are kind of fundamental to being human we share. Right? So we probably both all have goals of we want things to have meaning, we want a sense of connection, a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, a sense of autonomy. Right? But if I get into specifics... My interests are not necessarily going to be your interests. My goals will not necessarily be your goals. Does that make sense? Okay, now, but would it make sense for a person to presuppose that they know the motivations of a being which is not a person? No. So, since God has no constraints on his actions, and God is totally alien in terms of what his motivations would be, it really doesn't make any sense to ask the question why God does anything. But sometimes... I, I, one second. The fact that it doesn't make sense doesn't stop people from asking. And it also doesn't stop people coming up with answers. It's just, if you think about the question honestly for a second, right? The same, if I take the question, if I were to ask you why you did something, right? I would need two pieces of information to begin assembling a reasonable answer, which is what constraints you're operating under and what is motivating you. If, if God operates under no constraints and his motivations are completely alien to me because he's not a person. It's not true. Right. Now, it might bother me. I might not like that, but that's nonetheless the case. Yes? So why do you explain then the reason why God's created our souls, for example? I don't don't want to go to why then you have answers of why God does create things. Because I'm only bringing this up to explain... We do have answers. We do have answers for that. For certain things. Okay, I'm going to give you you a cop-out. Just because a question is not a fair question to ask doesn't mean you can't receive the answer. There's a difference if I'm asking a question as a philosophical question or I'm asking a question to God. I really don't want to go to this, but, but really that's the answer to your question. And there's two ways. I could ask you 
what you're trying to do and then assuming that you're have an honest self-reporting and you're honest with me, I can have the answer. But that's different than me asking the question in a speculative manner. So for me to ask why does God create a tree is a meaningless question because God doesn't operate under constraints. What motivates God is totally beyond me. I have no way of even beginning to answer that question. Right? And so it's literally a waste of my mental energy. If God, through some sort of prophecy of revelation, reveals to me the divine purpose of trees, that's a separate discussion. And even then, there's a lot more I could say on the topic. If we really, truly know why God would create a tree. The question with evil, though, is different. The question with evil is, strangely, the only legitimate question you can ask. The only question you ever can ask of why did God do something is evil. And I want to start there. Why is that the only legitimate question? And then we're going to go back to, does evil exist? So for, to do this, we need an understanding of what, what is evil. Now, um, I'm using the word evil to translate the Hebrew word ra. Ra could be evil, bad, negative, anything in that general space. Okay? Like paper cut? No, I just... as, as does, uh, like, does that fall under? Maybe. Maybe. Now, what I want to point out is that the word evil or bad or negative, um, or in Hebrew, the word ra, aren't words that really have their own meaning. They're words who gain their meaning from the concept of good or proper. In other words, when I say something is bad or evil, what do I mean by that? I mean that it is not good. If I have no concept of what I mean by good, now I could have, I could have various concepts of good and therefore I could have various concepts of mean by bad and in English we have a few words available. So we might use evil for a particular type of bad and we might not use evil for another type of bad. So it's like the natural disaster versus moral evil kind of distinction. But just as a, as a first order approximation of things, when we speak about something being Ra, or bad, or evil, or negative, what we mean to say is that we're negating its being good, or tov in Hebrew. Now, if you don't have a concept of good, you therefore don't have a concept of bad. Is the other way around also true? If you don't have a concept of bad, do you not have a concept of good? Yeah, I think so. Why? Because then it's just neutral, like it just is in contrast to, no, I don't think so. Okay. But, but let me ask you a question. Does every single concept in our mind always have to have a, a, a opposite or contrast for it to make sense? For instance, if I say phone, we all know what we mean by phone? Yes. What's the opposite of a phone? What's the antithesis of a phone? What's the negation of a phone? No phone. Right, you don't have a concept of that, right? The concept of phone is intelligible in its own right. Now, I, I realize that a phone, you need other concepts to make sense of it, but, but it, it's not, it, it makes a certain kind of sense. You don't need an, you don't need an antithesis concept for it. Okay? Fire, we all know what fire is? Okay. So then, what do we mean by good? Now, because I don't want to fall into an issue of semantics, I'm just going to assert that this is the basic meaning of what we mean by good or tov. Um, when we mean that something is good, we mean that it is the way it is supposed to be. In other words, there's two very important aspects of reality. There is what is and what ought to be. 
And something is good in the sense that it is the way it ought to be. Now, if my notion of what ought to be changes, then my notion of what's good changes. So for instance, you asked, is a paper cut bad? So I'll ask you this question slightly differently. Is your body, is your skin supposed to be um, free of any sort of cuts, keep the blood inside? Is that the way your skin is supposed to be? Yes. Right, at least as we understand how the biology of skin works and the role it plays in the body, right? Skin prevents infection, for instance, right? It can't do that. Right? So the skin is supposed to provide a, a kind of seal around the body, right? That's what it's supposed to be. And if the skin is doing that, if that skin is the way it is supposed to be, we call that. And therefore now, now in theory, one could have a reality where everything is as it's supposed to be, right? In theory. In theory. You could have a reality where the way things are supposed to be is the way things are. And in fact, you could have a reality in which case and where that, that, that's necessarily so. There is, no, there, there is no difference between the way things are and the way they're supposed to be. And in such a reality, you still have, you, you, you still have a concept of good, the way it's supposed to be and the way it is, and they align. But you don't really need a concept of evil. What you're describing is that the way things are is the way they're supposed to be, the way things are supposed to be is the way they are. This is very important because we describe Hashem in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Scripture as good. Hodu Hashem ki tov. Give thanks to Hashem because He is. What makes Him good? Just because He's That's right. God is the kind of being who he is, what he is supposed to be, and he's supposed to be what he is. And that's what we mean by good. Could you have an evil God as far as Judaism is concerned? No, it would make no sense to have an evil God because to be evil would be to that the way you are is not the way you're supposed to be. And, uh, just let me finish that. To be the way to be the way you are, not being the way you're supposed to be, would mean that there's something beyond you dictating the way you're supposed to be and something making you not be that way and clearly you're not the end all and be all of reality and therefore you're not God. You can't have an evil God. Many Jewish philosophers, the Rambam, but others make this point. The notion of a God who is evil is, it's, it's gibberish. It's, it's words that fit together grammatically but make no sense if you, if you really think about the meanings of all of the words. Um. What about someone who, like we, I mean, they do believe in Russia, right? Like bad, bad Jews, let's say. Mm-hmm. Right, but they still have. I mean, we learned in our other class that like everyone's you have neshama, and your neshama is perfect, so therefore you are perfect. Sometimes you're not showing the perfect side, but so what about what does that say about someone who who is a Russia, who's pure evil? You could have a Jew that's pure evil. I don't know. You're asserting that. I'm not gonna. I'm not necessarily buying into that. You can have a Jew who's pure evil. Okay. What about um, Turkmana? I mean, I can't pronounce the name, but the guy who started the Inquisition. You know, I'm, I, like I said, I'm not going to get, in this class, I'm going to only deal with the generalities because I want to get at the general idea, the, the main thrust of things. How we then would apply any of these ideas specific thing. If I do that, I won't get through the whole class. If I was doing a week worth of classes on evil, then I would go into some of these things. Okay. So, the starting point I want us to understand is this. Could God be evil, conceptually? No. No, why not? If evil means the negation of the concept of good, and good means the alignment of what is with what is supposed to be, if that's how we're understanding what we mean by that. 
Because that, first off in Torah, that's clearly what we mean by it. And I think if you pay attention to how people use the words, that you'll see that that's what they tend to mean by it. When someone comes and makes a comment, this was good, what, what, are, what are they making a claim about? That the way it is, is what do you mean it's good? No, they don't always mean that. For instance, if you go to a funeral, right? If you, yeah, if you go to a funeral, right? And you have a great time. You think it's the funniest thing, right? And you're having a pleasurable time, right? And you have any sense of decency. You don't think of that pleasurable experience as good, right? You think that that pleasurable experience is misaligned with what it's supposed to be, right? So we do have a notion. Now, I agree with you. Most of us in our animalistic selves tend to think that if I'm experiencing pleasure, that's the way it's supposed to be. So we do sometimes align pleasure with good. But it, it is an independent concept in our minds. Okay? Okay. So... And not everyone agrees on what's good because not everyone agrees on what's supposed to be. <laughs> but is, for something to supposed to be one way and it being another way means that it is, it's not God. Because God is, as we said before, God is the cause of everything. There can't, be, there can't be something dictating to God how God is supposed to be. There can't be something dictating to God how God actually is. And so however God is, that's how he's supposed to be. So God is inherently good. Okay, but now here's the problem. Reality, how does reality exist from yesterday's class? Solely because? God makes it that way. So then what would that mean about reality? And to say that God makes evil would mean that God is, even though I don't know what God is, it would mean that God is doing something which is antithetical to himself. And that's a question. In other words, to ask why God does something, I can just say God is beyond me. I don't know anything about God, right? But asking why God makes evil, again, assuming that he does, which we're going to come back to the question whether he actually does or not. But assuming God makes evil is basically asking the question, why would God act against himself? Why would God do something which is antithetical to himself? Why is he not antithetical to himself? What? Can you explain again why he goes into the to himself? Okay. What does it mean that something is good? That it is the way it should be. Okay. Is God the way he should be? So God is inherently? Good. So if God makes evil, then he is doing something which is against? Himself. Himself. God is the way he should be, and then he's making something the way it shouldn't be. And that requires, God is the way he should be, and he then goes and makes something the way it shouldn't be, that, that seems to be just inherently inconsistent. It's not a mystery, it's a contradiction. Because it doesn't align with who he is. Right. And, I, and what I want to point out is, I don't need to know what God is to ask this question. It's very, very important. I don't need to have any concept of what the good actually is like. I don't have to know what is good. Because that, we can, you can say, God is, I don't know what God is. I don't know, I, like, somebody dies, is that good? I don't know if it's good. I mean, I might not think the way it's, that's the way it's supposed to be, but maybe it is supposed to be that way. That's a separate issue. But if the concept of good is that there's an alignment between the way something is supposed to be and the way it is, well, God is intrinsically good. And then if you say that the world has evil in it, that means that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And the world, if it's created by God, it means it's that way because God made it that way. That means that God, who is the way he's supposed to be, made things not the way they're supposed to be. 
And that requires some, that, that's just incoherent. That, that on the surface makes no sense. And if you were to say, and this is very important, if you were to say, well, God just wants it to be that way, then that would mean that it's the way it's supposed to be, right? In which case it would not be evil. It might be not what you like, but it wouldn't be evil anymore. Okay, so I, this is why I'm not getting into the question, is a paper cut evil or is a rock falling on a person evil or is a murder evil? Because the question stands independent of what things go into the category of evil. I don't need to know which things are in objective fact evil or good. But if I, if I believe that evil exists and I believe that God created the world like we learned yesterday, I've run into something which is a blatant contradiction. It's incoherent. It, Unless you say God is evil. But you can't say God is evil. Because why? Because what would... To say that something is evil, you need to have two things that don't align. So whatever makes it be the way it is and whatever determines the way it's supposed to be. So let's use your skin. From the standpoint of your biology, your skin is supposed to protect your body. Okay? That is, that is what your body as a biological organism needs from your skin or one of its needs from the skin, right? So your biological organism, is, is that, that need is determining the, what is supposed to be for the skin, which is that it should be fully intact. The, th- the paper cut the skin, and so now the actual skin is not intact, right? So what do we have? We have, we have something coming about, between, coming about between these two conflicting things, the needs of the body and the paper. Now, that's something that's brought about, as we spoke about in... The first class, whatever God is, God is the ultimate reason, the ultimate cause, the ultimate why, yeah? So is there anything that causes God to be the way he is? Okay, so then could anything determine that God needs to be one way and then something else makes God be a different way? No. So could God ever be not the way he's supposed to be? That wouldn't make any sense. And so the notion of God being evil is nonsensical. Not because I'm a religious person, just because the con- it doesn't make sense. You could, you could still, everything I just said, you could believe in God, not believe in God. Still, that concept of God could not be evil. Evil only makes sense, or bad only makes sense, in the, when you have this notion, something should be one way, and yet something made it be not true. It's just, I don't, I don't understand why evil would be only by comparison to good and not Every concept is in comparison to other concepts. Okay? That's true. You can't have concepts on their own. Concepts are like people, you know, people have relatives. Every concept has to be related to other concepts. But not every concept has to have a negation in order for it to make sense. If I have a concept of the way things are, and I have a concept of the way things should be, I can have a concept that those two things belong together and are together, and that's it. I then can add to that a realization that negates all of that. Every negation is always a secondary concept because you first affirm and then you negate. First you say, um, just even think in language, right? If I say, the tree is a dinosaur. How many words do I have in that sentence? What? The tree is a dinosaur. I have five, right? We'll drop the the and the uh because they don't really make a difference. So I have three words. I have tree, I have is, and I have dinosaur, right? And what am I, so 
the tree refers to a tree, a dinosaur refers to a dinosaur, and the is is that I'm predicating being a dinosaur on the tree. Okay, so I have three concepts I'm put together to make a, a, a more complex concept. Now if I want to say, and that's by the way false, we all know that that's false, right? The tree is not a dinosaur? Okay. If I want to make that, if I want to modify the statement so it's true, what do I do? I add a word. What word do I add? Not. not. So I've added a new concept, the negation of the false, right? In other words, I, the, 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 when concepts that, concepts that, that are negating something else means first you have to have a concept of what you're negating. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. I first have to have a concept of the tree being a dinosaur, and then I can say, no, the tree is not a dinosaur. If I have no concept of the tree being a dinosaur, you never come up with a sentence, the tree is not a dinosaur. You never, you never conceptualize the negation of something before first having some sense of what it is you're negating. When we're saying something is good, we are appreciating the alignment between what it is and what it's supposed to be. What happens when we're saying something is ra, negative, evil, bad? What are we saying? That alignment which we would expect or like or appreciate is not present. So we're negating. So it's, it's, a, it's a secondary concept. This, this, I don't want to get stuck here because it's, it's something to really think about. But it's, it's a very important thing to think about. That a lot of things that we have words for actually have two layers to them. Okay? Think about like a word like impossible. What does it mean that something is impossible? So you first have to conceive of it being doable and then say, oh, it can't be done. If you can't in any way conceive of the thing being doable, then then does it even then the notion of impossibility doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't even speak about it. Something that you genuinely cannot conceive of happening in any way, shape, or form at all, you can't even think of it being impossible. You just don't think of it at all. Things that you think of as being impossible, you have some concept of it happening, and they say, no, 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 for reasons X, Y, and Z, it can't happen. And you go on and on. All the negative concepts work like that. Okay, so getting back to this, this part, if, if, and again, this is the way, I think, this is sure the way that it was understood in Torah, and I think this is the way most people use the word most of the time. If good is this fact that something is the way it's supposed to be, a God who is, the, who is not caused or not influenced or not based on anything outside of himself can't be evil by definition. Doesn't mean I know what he's like. It doesn't mean I necessarily like him. I just can't be evil. Conceptually. And then if you say that, that there's evil in the reality, and reality is solely made by God, like we discussed yesterday, then you have this very weird thing where you're saying God is acting against God. And that's why that question is a legitimate question. Because to say, why does the thing that I don't, knew, I don't understand do things that I can't understand, well, that's, that's not much of a question. Why does God make a tree? I don't know what God is. I don't know what motivates him. So I don't know why he makes a tree. It's not much of a question there. But why does God go against God? Well, that, I don't even know, I don't need to know what God is in that sentence to still appreciate there's something there that doesn't make sense. And so that's why that's a very important question to answer if, in fact, evil exists. Why is evil against God, though? It sounds like it's just against the nature of who he is. What, what do you mean? Like... Are there other, what do you mean? There's God and there's the nature of who he is and what else is there? It's like a few different parts of God. Think about what you're saying. There's God. Does God have a separate thing called a nature? No, it's who he is. 
Okay, so if God is going against... Right? If, 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 I'm, if I am a person, yeah, you would expect me to do what kind of things? Person things. Good. What are some person things? What are some things that people do as people? We play, we talk, we socialize, right? We pursue goals, right? So what would happen if you were to see a person? Let's use an example. What do you see happen to a person if a person um, doesn't do those things? They do the opposite of those things. They, 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 they refuse to pursue goals. Like say someone who's very depressed. We like think what's wrong, right? Because it's fine if you do different things for me but you should be doing the things that are consistent with what you are, and I should be doing the kinds of things that are consistent with what I am, and for both people, we should both be doing basically people things, right? You see a person who's not doing people things, such as pursuing aims and goals, right? We say, there's something wrong here, right? What happened? We're confused. It doesn't make sense. So if I don't know what God is, that's fine. But God is what God is supposed to be, so then whatever God does should be the way it's supposed to be, Right? So for God to do something that isn't supposed to be, that doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. Okay, does God make evil? So in Judaism, there are two answers to this question. One answer is no, and one answer is yes. But remember what we said yesterday, that reality is created entirely by God, right? It's not made out of anything. So if God doesn't create evil, then that would also follow. There is no evil. So basically, there's two views in Judaism. One view that there's no evil, and one view, there is evil. Okay? Now. Very, very briefly... What would it, what is it, what is the idea that there is no evil? And then how do we understand the idea that there is evil? Okay. So if I have someone that I really care about and they die, how do I feel, emphasis on feel about that? That that is good or that is bad? Bad. That is bad. Okay. Why? Let's un- unpack that. Why do I feel that that is bad? It's painful and then it's gone. Well, I think the pain stems from the fact that I feel that it's bad, right? Right. Because when someone's not in this world... Anymore. Because I have a sense that they are supposed to be there, and they're not there, and that creates an un- uncomfortable sensation called pain, right? Now, generally speaking, what happens with most healthy human beings as time goes on after the person has died, especially if the person has died in what we'll call normal circumstances, they make peace with the, loss. the pain goes away. Why does the pain go away? That's right, and that happens both on a level of experience. They become familiar with a life where their presence is no longer there, and they also, because as the intensity of the emotion dies down, their rational understanding of the world starts to kick in, and there's an understanding that the nature of the world is that people are supposed to die for whatever reasons they might understand it to be, and therefore it makes sense that at some point the person dies, right? Now, if the death is more abnormal, that's going to be harder, not so much because they get used to life without the person, because that ha- they don't get used to life with the person because that can ha- that, that's really immaterial but because it's harder for them to have a sense that it's supposed to be that way hence people get over losing a parent in old age much easier than people get over say the exact opposite losing a young child because most human beings if they're 
stepping out of their own particular circumstance have a sense. The way the world is supposed to work is that people get old and die. Okay. Now, so what that means is evil is a category of my mind and how my mind processes reality, but there's no evil out there in the world. There's just the way things are, and the way things are is the way they're supposed to be. There's such a view in Judaism. Now, if that's such a view, you don't have to ask why God made evil. You, can, you just have to ask, like, why did God make mortal people? And, like, the answer to that, I'm not God. Like, why, why make people who are mortal? I don't know. But if he made people who are mortal and they die, well, then, I mean, they're supposed to die because they're mortal. I mean, that's the way it is. Doesn't that just discount, like, the complexity of the, of the question? No. Just saying that we can't understand. No, it says there's nothing to understand. There's, it raises all sorts of very interesting questions, which are more important questions, frankly, according to both views, which is, given that we are mortal and do die, how should we deal with that? That's an important question. What about the brutal death versus a regular death? So then the same thing. We could then ask about that also, right? I mean, this leads to hard and important questions, but... but the, 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 all it means is, is letting go of the sense that just because I feel it shouldn't be that way doesn't mean that there's any truth to that. In other words, there's a kind of relinquishing of the sense that just because I don't like it doesn't make it morally this case. And in a more, excuse me, a more basic sense, it just means realizing that you're not God. Our sages say that anyone that gets angry, it's like they worship idols. Why? Fighting reality, like God's word. When you're angry, what motivates anger? This isn't the way it should be. And who's determining the should be? You. So who is taking the role of God? You. Okay. So that that was it. So that there's a whole stream of thought in Judaism. The Rambam takes this very very seriously, but this idea shows up in many approaches to Judaism, and it also shows up in Chassidus. No, because you can't ask you can't ask why Hashem does anything, but you can reverse the question, which is which is what role does pain play in our existence, and that is a very important question. For instance, when do we experience pain? Well, more broadly, for instance, if I if I get thrown into a wall, experience pain. If something goes in the wall the way I expect, and pain. Um, if I don't live up to what I'm supposed to do. There's pain, right? So pain is a way of experiencing a kind of a, a, a incongruence, a tension, a conflict in reality, right? Wouldn't it be good to have a sense um, that things aren't fitting together? Helping you, like for instance, when you have a car, isn't it good that it has a light that goes on when the engine needs to be checked? Isn't it good that your hand starts to hurt if it's in a fire? Isn't it good that you have pangs of conscience that make you can't stand yourself when you act immorally? Doesn't all of that help you navigate the different complexities of life? Doesn't the sense of loss you experience when a close one is gone help you appreciate the importance of life when you have it? So in other words, if I change the question, not say, why did God do it? But given that God did it, what is the role it plays in our existence? 
And so if you shift the question from why did God to what should my relationship with this God-created reality be, then you have a very, set, a very important set of questions, right? So it's not about just like dismissing the phenomenon of pain and discomfort and all that. It's just reframing it to out of this question of evil and then they raise the question, why would God act in a way that's incongruous with being God? I say, well, the issue is that there's things that you don't experience in a pleasurable experience in a painful way, um, and you maybe falsely build expectations on that. But even if we drop away those expectations, there's still something important in those experiences that is guiding and instructive about the nature of ourselves and reality, both on a physical level all the way up to a spiritual level. Um, now, in that sense, um, and, and I'll just end this train of thought with, with this analogy, in that sense, evil is kind of like physical darkness. There's no such thing as physical darkness. There's light. And when we don't have the degree of light we would like to have or expect to have, we process that in our mind by labeling it as dark. Yes, that's... Like there's no thing out. You can't like go to the store and buy some darkness. It's relative. Right? It's a relative absence. So when, when something isn't the way we think it should be, we, we have a concept in our mind for that called evil, which is a useful concept in our mind, and it helps us maybe navigate the world if we apply it correctly, but it's not that there's actually a thing out there in the world. It's just that you know, nothing is absolute other than God, and why would God make reality that is temporal and mortal and where things can break and fall apart, those are, I'm not God, and I don't have any way of ascertaining God's motivations, but I can ask different questions. Given that this is the nature of our reality, what can we learn from that, and what wisdom has God shared with us about how to navigate that correctly and properly? So that's one kind of approach. The other approach is, I don't know, God created evil. He really did. Now, if God created evil, then what does he mean? What did he create? He created things which are not supposed to be there. Or things which make things be the way they're not supposed to be. That's what it means. He created evil. So for argument's sake, let us say that it's supposed to be that everyone lives forever. Then why do people die? Something must be making them die. That something that's making them die would be evil. Yeah? Does that make sense? So you have to ask the question. If, if, if as far as God is concerned, people are supposed to live forever, then why would God make it so that there's something which makes them not live forever? Now, again, I could just say maybe God doesn't think people should live forever and like problem solved. But, but if you go with this other view, no, no, there's evil. You can take this further. Um, God thinks we're supposed to act righteously. Right? So if we don't act righteously then that's because there's something yeah, preventing us or making us not act righteously. So then the question is, why make such a thing? Why incorporate such a thing into reality? Okay, so now I'm going to ask, you ask, answer the question, why would God create evil? Dramatic effect. I want you to tell me what you can answer with using only reason you know, like all we know is 
God, right, obviously, God is the way he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be the way that he is. And God created a world, and he created it in such a way that things are not the way they're supposed to be. So, so why would he do that? So we could fix it. So we could appreciate the way you're supposed to be. We don't have an understanding of why he created it. But, again, if I ask you why does God create reality, that's a fair thing to say because I have no way of conceptualizing God. But if I ask you the question about evil, you have to... You can say I don't know the answer, but it's, but it's a question, it's a question that, that needs an answer because... In other words, there's two, kinds of, there's two kinds of not knowing things. There's not knowing things because the information is unavailable to you. And there's not knowing something because it's nonsensical. To say that God acts unlike God is nonsensical. So then, we had a few answers. Anyone want to give any other answers? So there can be like a purpose of life? There can be a purpose of life. Okay, what do all these answers have in common? There's a benefit to it. There's a benefit to it. Okay? But I want to point out that all these benefits are external to the evil. In other words, what you're, what you're saying is that God creates evil not because God is, for lack of words, interested in evil. God is creating evil because evil is a precursor or a basis or condition for something else. Okay? And now what you've done is you just try to come up with what are the dip, what are the other something else's that could be. Okay? So let, let me use let me use an example not about God, just in, in general life, okay? Um, what is the purpose of paying your taxes? That's a question, yes? What's that? That's that's a question, right? What is the purpose in Going to the park with your children. That's a different question. Why? Why is it a different question? One has inherent value in itself. Right. In other words, if you really appreciate what it is to go to the park with your children, you don't really need to provide any other justification for it. In other words, when someone asks what's the purpose of going to the park with their children, what they're really asking is, what is this activity really? Right? To the person who's doing that activity, what is really going on there? It's not just the physical act of moving the children into an outdoor space, right? But in doing that, there's a kind of a bonding that takes place, and that bonding is intrinsically valuable. And so what we're doing, we're, sometimes we're asking the purpose for something. What we're really asking is, what is this in a deeper sense? Because if you know what it is in a deeper sense, you see the intrinsic worth in it. And then you don't need to really find some justification for it. Um, Interesting question. What's the difference between asking the question about the importance of eating or why, why a person eats versus why a, pers- a person learns things? So the person is spending their time learning something and a person is spending their time eating. And you go and ask the person who's learning, why are you learning? You ask the person why are you eating, why are you eating? Are those the same kind of question? Why not? What are reasons why people eat? So that they can do other things. So they can do other things, right? Sometimes there's inherent joy in the actual... Well, another reason why people eat is... What? Well, that's just they needed to get to other things. What's another reason people... Pleasure. Now, this is interesting. Let's... I want to talk about adults, yeah? 
adult human beings, when do we eat because it's pleasurable? Not I'm asking you when do we enjoy eating. That's a separate question. In other words, I can eat because I'm hungry and still enjoy eating. I can eat because I go to making a, a wedding or went to a wedding in order to celebrate and there's food and part of the subject is eating the food and I enjoy the food, right? When do we, simply because it is pleasurable, when do we do that? What state of mind are we usually when that happens? It. What? When you don't need it? Yeah, when, no. what, when, when, what state of mind are you when you go and eat food because the food tastes good? Not a good state of mind. Generally not a good state. It's very interesting. Adult human beings, if they are engaged in something on a, on, a, on a more real human level, a relationship, an interest, right? Then the eating because it tastes good tends to fall away. So it almost actually seems like that you're not eating because it tastes good. You're using the fact that it tastes good to do what? To eat. What? To make you feel better because... Right, and you can see why this can lead to negative eating habits, right? Okay, now another reason you could eat because eating has a social effect, right? This is the reason why Jews eat a lot because we're very big into communal religion. Communal religion means getting together. Getting together means we need glue to bind us. What is the basic glue that binds people? Food. Food, okay. So why do we have Shabbos meals? Why do we have holiday meals? Why do we have wedding meals? By the way, these are Jewish law requires these meals to take place. And one of the reasons is that Judaism should be practiced and celebrate it on the communal level, and that requires food. Also, why there's prohibitions against eating with non-Jews above and beyond the basic kosher laws to help create the opposite of that, that there shouldn't be assimilation. Okay, so I have you know, three different reasons for eating, but you'll notice that none of them really are like, as a human being, it's intrinsically valuable to me to like take vegetables and dead animals and put them in my mouth. It's just like not a thing that people have see intrinsic value in. And that's saying people don't enjoy it, but it's not like intrinsic value. And it's a, either it's a technical thing, like without it, I'm not going to functional. It plays a significant social role, right? It's a way of people dealing with feelings of emptiness or stress. But if you take away all those three things, what happens? Like it doesn't seem to have like a value in it. Now let's go back to the idea of learning an idea. When you're learning an idea, and you really appreciate that you're learning an idea. What does that feel like? Other than saying good, don't say good. Like, what does it feel like is happening to you? When you're learning an idea? Yeah, you're learning something. You're actually coming to understand it. Not you're in a classroom, because you could be in a classroom not learn things. You're being elevated? You feel like you're being elevated. Or you feel, you can feel like you're being elevated. Another way of putting it, you feel like you're discovering something true. Okay, another thing is, right? The, those kind, and those kinds of things seem like there's like an inherent value in what's happening. Now, again, you could be in a, intellectual setting and you're officially learning an idea but it's not really happening and therefore you have the negative effect, right? Someone's sitting in math class and they just don't get what's going on in any real deep way. They don't feel they're elevated. They feel they're just being shot, shut out. Okay. So that's what I'm talking about, the experience of actually really learning something. So those are very different. If I want to know why a person eats, I need to like I, I, I need to like find some what, what role is it playing in some other Context. What, in other words, it has a kind of extrinsic value. When I ask about learning, I really have to like know what's going, what, what learning is. If I really know what learning is, then the person who's experiencing learning sees that that is a life-enriching activity in and of itself. Okay? Um, let's use some other things. Making money. Having friends. 
if you ask why is a person trying to make money or why is a person trying to develop friendships, are those the same type of question? No, because what, what, what is it to have a friend? It's, it's a very life-affirming, life-enriching type of a thing, whereas making money only has value in some other context. Right? The people that pursue money for the sake of pursuing money is also not the money itself. The money becomes a stand-in for social status and competition, right? Or, you know, on my level, so I can, you know, pay for the things I want to buy. Good? Okay? So, there's, so the, there's, there's this notion that something has an extrinsic value. Its value comes from outside itself. And we ask that question about things which don't really have that value to, to yourself. So now if God is good, if God does creates a world the way the world is supposed to be, like, okay, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's a good thing. It's, it doesn't require any questions. Maybe I could ask what God sees in it. I would be asked, or be stuck with, well, I'm not God. How would I know what he sees in it? Or I could say, um, what, what about it is really the main part of it? What is so special about it? I could ask these kinds of questions. But if, I ha- if, I, if God makes something that's not supposed to be the way it is, then whatever value it is is going to be extrinsic. It's going to be outside of that thing. The value is not in the, thing that think- the fact that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's that things not being the way they're supposed to be makes it possible for something else, which is valuable to be the case. And it could be any of the things that you mentioned or some other thing. In other words, what we need to think of now is we need to think about a God who does something for some other end. It's that God creates one thing for the sake of something else entirely. That's the only way to make sense of why God would create evil. That the value God sees is not in the evil, because evil is the thing that's not supposed to be. It's the not supposed to be part of the evil makes something else possible, and that's something that is supposed to be. And now we can have an open discussion of what that could be, and you guys all came up with some very good answers. Not even, this, and they're not the same answer. Yeah. So then the question arises: Why does God have to create like a like a, like a step to achieve something? Oh, that's exactly what I wanted to go to. So then you would have to go a little bit further and say, okay, I need to eat because I am incapable of functioning without eating, or I need to eat because we are as human beings incapable of forming the kind of real celebration and bonds without food as we do with food. Or I, as a human being, am tempted to eat because I'm incapable or unwilling to deal with my emptiness or negativity in the proper way. But all of those kinds of things that have extrinsic value come from a kind of a lacking. And then you have a problem. Well, I mean, couldn't God just skip to the end, right? Whatever, whatever is the valuable thing that God gets, whatever the valuable thing that God gets out or sees as the extrinsic value from the evil, God could just go directly there and not have the evil. Because he's not operating with constraints. Yeah, but maybe that appreciation just wouldn't be there. It's like impossible to have it without this stuff. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, you're right, but I want to, I want to, I want to refine the answer because that, that there's, there's two different things that get mixed up in this question. One is God and one is us. Can God make me um, the person that I am and also give me the knowledge I have now when I was a teenager? In other words, could God make me 
But instead of me having to live as long as I've lived to gain the knowledge I have about life that I have now, he would have just granted me that knowledge when I was a teenager. Yeah. He could do that. Would I still be me then? You'd be a different kind of me. I would be a different me, wouldn't I? Yeah. Right. In other words, that's not, that's not because of a limitation on God's part. It's because, like, God... It's God created me to be a person. One of the characteristics of a person. Now, why God wants people, I don't know. But one of the characteristics of people is that they are shaped by how they deal with their experiences, right? So, like I talked to this with my wife sometime. Like, wouldn't it be nice to go back and like start our marriage over again, knowing what we know now? And it would be very nice. But then it wouldn't be our marriage. <laughs> like, if, like if you if you go back in time and you and you know you have the maturity to to to, to then that you do now, then you wouldn't go through experiences that way. And when you get to now, you wouldn't be the you you are now. You'd be somebody else. Because what is a person? A person is someone who grows based on how they experience the world and process that and deal with that. I don't mean to say that we're completely determined by our circumstances. I just mean to say that we grow based on how we deal with that. Some of that's our choice. Some of that's what we're exposed to. So, so God can do whatever he wants. You know, but if God makes this cup red, it will be red. It won't be this pattern. And if he makes it this pattern, it won't be red because just if he makes me with more maturity when I'm a teenager, then I won't be the me I am now. I would be a different kind of person. Does that make sense? Right, but then how do you ever answer this then? One second, one second, okay? So now, if the question is that God wants to get to some point X and the only way for him to get there is to create evil, well, that doesn't make any sense. God could just poof and will the X, right? But what if what, what if what God wants involves a person? Now, a person does have kind of constraints on what they are. Now, those constraints are because God wants them to be what they are, which is a person. So, for instance, you mentioned the idea of appreciation. Can we appreciate that something is wrong before we encounter it, the way we appreciate it's wrong after we've encountered it? No, that's the kind of being we are. So if God wants me to really know how wrong a wrong thing is, the only way as a person I could know that is... To experience the wrong. Now, could God just give me that knowledge without me experiencing it? Sure, but then what would I be? Not a person. person. Right, so you understand the limitation is not on God's part. The limitation is because God wants a limited being. So God plays by that limited being's rules. If God doesn't want a limited being, he could do something else. Which means, therefore, and this is what's very important, in this view that evil has a purpose, there's something that evil leads to, an extraneous thing, that thing that it leads to necessarily involves the person, the person's humanity. Because it's the person's humanity that makes the evil like a, a necessary part of reality. If God wants to get to some end state, he could just make that end state. If God wants a person to get to a certain place, well, people, have, people are the way they are. And if, and if the way that they get to that state involves encountering a negativity and an evil, well, then that means that the purpose of evil necessarily in, involves the nature of the human being. And what that means is um, how much evil there has to be in the world depends entirely on us. And in no way on God. 
Regardless of what evil is, regardless of what good is, how much of evil there is is going to be dependent on how much we need to get to the place that God wants us to be. So if we get to the place that we need to be, does the evil have any justification for its existence anymore? No. Does that, that make sense? In other words, if God sees a purpose in evil, that because evil gets him somewhere that he wants to go, then that, that makes no sense because God could just, again, get there. Just be there. But if God wants us to be in a certain state, and as people, the only way we get in that state is to encounter a kind of evil in some way, shape, or form, well, then the evil needs to be there as long as it's serving the role of getting us to that place. If we're already in that place, or evil beyond that, doesn't have any justification for its existence, and therefore God would not create it. Which means, even though we're saying God creates evil, who really holds the volume switch on how much evil there is in the world? People. Not in sort of saying, I get to choose just by my fear. I don't like evil. But if I get to the place that we're supposed to get to because of it, through the encountering evil in whatever way, well, then the evil doesn't serve any role anymore and then there's no need for it. And that's the basic idea of why when we say in the Messianic era there's no evil. That evil, this, in this sense, evil is an inherent part of the growing and redemptive process of people. It is not that it serves some sort of profound existential purpose from God's point of view. Now, why does God value that particular mode of being of a human being encountering evil and dealing with it in whatever way as opposed to a beautiful idyllic world with no evil? I'm not God, I don't know. Right. In other words, it's, it's a shadow of our own humanity rather than, rather than something that God just gets a kick out of, which would be kind of disturbing. Why can't it be something that God just gets a kick out of? Because it's incoherent. It makes no sense. That would mean God gets a kick out of his own antithesis. Now, that just... Maybe it, that's amusing. What? Yeah, but the, the, the problem with the idea of amusement as like an actual explanation of things, amusement is very good as a metaphor for certain things in Kabbalah, but it's not an explanation. Actually, I want to explain to you why. Why is amusement not a good explanation for anything God does? What is amusement? Like, forget feelings. We, 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 ascribe, we ascribe feelings to God all the time. So we have to de-anthropomorphize, right? We ascribe love, we ascribe justice, we ascribe will, we ascribe wisdom to God. Why can't we ascribe amusement to God as a motivation? Think about it. We don't, we don't do, do, we do not ascribe to God amusement as motivation. We do ascribe to God having amusement in other contexts to explain other things. Suggest? What? Suggest. Um, the way God reacts to certain endeavors of people. He finds them amusing. But we don't ever describe it as motivation. Why not? No, but then you, can, then you shouldn't even ever just describe his motivations as being driven by love or will or wisdom. So the thing is, you have to go back to a person. Like, whenever you ask these questions about God, you have to go back to the person and think, okay, what do I mean by a person? Kind of abstract out something that's more, less to do with your actual experience and more conceptual what's going on. And then say, is anything like that even remotely plausible by God in some way, shape, or form? So now, what is amusement? When people are doing something for amusement, what does that mean? They need it. They're bored. They're bored, right? The mere existence of their being is unsettling, and they require something to 
compensate that, distract them from it, or something like that. Now, a God whose being is insufficient for himself is kind of not much of a God, right? Okay. Now, on the other hand, if I say love, in contrast, if I love, right, love is kind of the reverse, is that my sense of being is like too big to contain in myself, and I reach out to kind of share myself with others. That, you could say like, God is so... There's so, so good and, or so real or so much of a real being that, that, that he actually is able to be real, not just for himself, but he can be real and give reality to others. Like someone who's so rich, not only they can provide for their own needs, they can provide for others. So that, that makes a certain kind of sense to, ascribe a, to describe a God like that. Okay, you have to take rid of all the anthropomorphism and all the emotional experiences, but there's something to that kind of a description. Justice, you can do that with. Wisdom, you can do that with. Will, you can do that with. Amusement, you can't do that with. Hunger, you can't do that with also, by the way, for the same reason. So it's just not a good... And that's why it's disturbing to think of a God who creates us for his amusement. Right, it, it makes it feel like, 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 like God is like needy and petty and that's not very godlike. Okay. The analogy is used for other things. So, so getting back to this, so what we're left with is the following thing is, do I think that there are things in reality that are really driving or pushing things to be not the way they're supposed to be? And if so, that means that God made them be that way. And if he made them be that way, that's to bring about the thing that he finds valuable, which is something about the way I, conf- I confront that evil, which means the evil will only exist in as much as I need to confront it. No more and no less. And if I ever get to a place where I can be in the place where God wants me to be without the confronting evil, because I've already sufficiently confronted evil, then evil will cease to exist. And if you read through the Tanakh, you can see that there is that kind of description of things. Um, and another way you could look is the other way. You could say that evil is just a category of our mind, right? There's nothing that, that our mind has a sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, which helps us navigate in the world, but doesn't mean actually in reality God is making things not be the way they're supposed to be. Either way, what comes out is God is not making things be evil because God sees some value in negativity or cruelty or, 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 or bad or anything like that. Okay? And it's also not because God is incapable of getting things right the first time or he's constrained by some other things. It's either it's entirely a category of our mind or it serves some kind of role in us becoming who we're supposed to become. And again, human beings become, we're not just are. So those are the kind of two trends you find in Jewish thought. And again, some thinkers go more one way, some thinkers go more the other way. Hasidus blends these ideas, by the way. But that's kind of an overview of just the general thing about Judaism, how we view evil. Now, on a very practical level, that means that in Judaism, is there any place for complaining to God about what has happened? Because if you follow the first view, it was supposed to be that way, right? There's nothing evil about it. And if you follow the second view, the, the thing you're supposed to do with that evil is grow from it or confront it in some way, right? But complaining to God about it, right? We can talk about 
Okay, so now I want to explain to you what I mean. Complaining is a very specific thing. As a parent, I know what complaining is. When a child comes to me and they complain, um, my initial response as a parent is to be completely unresponsive. Um, and if they're really insistent, is to be very dismissive. On the other hand, if they come and they're not complaining, but they are, and I'm gonna give two broad things, or the main things. One thing is they could be speaking about the future, right? How do I go forward given that I've encountered X? Even though they're not necessarily formulating it that way, but that's basically where they're coming from, right? So they're not complaining about the past. What they're doing is this past has set up some kind of dilemma, whether it's a practical dilemma, an emotional dilemma of how I proceed in the future, and I'm coming to you as my parent for guidance, advice, and how to deal with that. That's a very different kind of thing, right? The other kind of thing is that the child can be coming simply for a sense of um, not being alone, being, having, having a sense of belonging and togetherness, which helps a person deal with experiences of negativity. So that's not about the future, that's about the present. So in other words, the child, the, the child, I don't know, they got into a fight at school and they come home and they complain. The complaining part, like, but the child comes home and they say, I feel hurt. And the thing that will make me feel better is to know that you care about me. And so like, they're not saying it in those words, right? And that's what they're coming for. That's a very different kind of thing. Or they're saying, I got in this fight in school and now I have like, how do, like I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I'm going to be embarrassed because everyone's going to look at me and say, so how do I deal with that? Those are, you see, those are three very different things. So to turn to God, right? And to say, God, what, you're, what you did isn't fair. Why did you do that? Just pure complaining? Does that have any place? But if you're saying, God, I feel alone, I feel left out, I feel abandoned, right? That's a legitimate thing because like, that's a current need in the moment. Or I do not know how to proceed given what has happened. I don't know how to make sense of how to go forward. Right? So that's what I'm saying. A complaint is not, when I say a complaint, I mean a very specific thing because that, in, there's a certain acceptance built into both approaches. One is the acceptance that things are the way they are. Or the other is that things have a role to play even if the role to play is to grow from them, those things or, and learn to reject those things. But to just wallow in the fact this negativity exists and to rail your arms at God and say, why does this negativity exist? It's not fair, God. That's not a Jewish thing to do. Now, is it Jewish to simply say, well, okay, God does it. It's none of my business. That's also not Jewish because either way, we're supposed to live life in a certain way. Right? We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to, right? Either way you approach these things, so, for instance, the Rambam who says, like, there's no evil that exists in the world, also says whenever you encounter a tragedy, what should you do? What? Yeah, we should do. Anytime you encounter a tragedy, even if it didn't happen to you, you should do tshuva. Why? Yeah, now, to, I mean, you could make it a whole Ashkacha Pratis thing, but I want to explain to you without that whole notion of Ashkacha Pratis. It's a very basic thing. The fact that the world works this way tells you what is the relative value about temporal things versus what's the relative value of godly things. And where are you... Yeah. You know, it's, 
A building collapses. What does it tell you about the value of a building if it can collapse in an earthquake? How real is it? How true is it? How stable is it? it, it it's the Ram calls Hevle Azman, the vanities of time, things that come and go. On the other hand, living as God wishes us to live, following his Torah, which contains an eternal truth. Okay, so now you see this tragedy and it's sad. And you think, okay, well, in my own life, do I put effort and focus on things that are more temporal in nature and ultimately fated to fall apart at the expense of things which are true and eternal? And that's the process of trufa. So even, even, even something like that, even if you don't want to label it as an evil that serves a purpose, but at the end of the day, it, you can, it, it's, it has a place. And so the, either way you're looking at the, and there are differences between these viewpoints, but they do share certain things in common, which is they're very forward looking rather than backward looking. Okay. And that's the thing I want you to take away from this is that there are these different views, there are these different things, and again, I want to speak very broadly, but there is a kind of common Jewish thread which is not focusing on how bad things are and being upset by that, but being forward thinking. Right? How do I grow? How, do I, how am I supposed to live my life? And whether you conceptualize the evils actually existing with a purpose or this is the way the world is, either way that doesn't really change on that level. There are differences between these two viewpoints. For instance, the idea that you could transform something evil into something good only makes sense if you think the evil is actually an evil. Um, the idea that um, you know, true absolute monotheism where only God has any influence in the world is much clearer where you don't think that evil exists at all. It's a little more complicated. If you say God creates something which acts against him, it kind of creates a duality in your life. Okay, there's these differences. The last thing I'm going to say is a story. It's a very um, famous story about Abraham's d discovery of God. I'm going to tell the story the way most people hear it and then I'm going to tell the story the way it's actually written in the Medrash. The story is Avram Avinu was traveling. And he saw the world, and he thought about the world, and he thought about the world, and he realized the world that's so complex and so rich and so beautiful, clearly there must be a God. And that's like a person who saw a beautiful building, palace or whatever. Clearly there must have been someone who built it, right? You've heard this story before? This idea, some version of this? Okay. you never heard it before? It's not a connection to Avram. Except the Medrash... That's the way it's usually um, told by many, many sources, which is fine. It illustrates a very important point. But the original Medrash actually says something different. It says Avram was traveling and he saw suffering. And he was very confused. Could it be the world doesn't have a God? It does. But if there's a God, why is there suffering? <laughs> and then it gives an analogy. There was once a man traveling and he saw a beautiful building that was on fire. And the man was confused because if there's a beautiful building, clearly someone built it. There's an owner of the building, right? But if there's an owner of a building, why is it burning down? Shouldn't he be putting it out? Putting out the fire? And then what happens? The owner of the building comes out and says to the man, says, I am the owner of the building and I have a reason why I want it to burn. So too, God appeared to Avram and said, there's a reason why there's suffering in the world. What's the reason why there's suffering in the world? I stopped the measures right before the end. What's the reason why there's suffering in the world? 
So you could read the Medrash in many, many different ways. But what the Medrash says at the end, the reason why there's suffering in the world has to do with the role of people. Has to do with... The role of people. In other words, that the reason why there's a suffering in the world is for, I'll say reason, for you to deal with it. Part of your process of growing is you confronting evil. And this is a measure explaining the verse where Hashem says, Lech Lecha, tells Avram to go. Where's the going? So the journey was, as Avram travels, he encounters that his, his philosophy that there's one God creates the world, it's not so simple, people are suffering. And he has, so to speak, a crisis of faith, and God reveals himself and says, the suffering does exist. It's not because I don't create it. And this kind of tends more to the second view. It has a purpose, and that purpose is something about your journey, your growth. And so what does that tell us again? That, that, that it's about, the question is a real question, but the answer comes back to not why does God do it? Okay, now I know the answer. I can now go to sleep. If I know why God creates evil, that answer comes ultimately down to something that I have to be growing or doing or changing. I need a bar over the Good? Yeah. That's the, a general overview of Judaism on evil. A general Is there a lot more? Yes. yes. Okay. Right. In other words, if you think that God created evil, that means we become ex- that, that 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 goes hand in hand with seeing human growth as a central part of reality. If you go the other view, human growth is still an important part of reality, but it doesn't take that same level of centrality, right? There's trade-offs in these ways of looking. This is, this is how Avram discovered Hashem? So many people just use this measure to explain how Avram discovered Hashem, but the way the measure is put is actually how Avram had a crisis after he discovered Hashem. It's well, like... He it, was traveling because Hashem yeah. told him to. Yeah, he travels, Hashem told him to, and all of a sudden he sees Eve, and he's like, what's going on? I thought there was God in the world. And the answer is that the suffering is also because of God and, and it exists in order for you to play some kind of role. Then the commentaries discuss and debate what that role is and how that makes sense and whatever. I mean, this happens a lot. You say, like, you have a person who grows up religious and they have, like, all this beautiful theology and explanation of Judaism that makes so much sense to their childlike self and their young teenage self. And then they grow up and life happens and life does not turn out as pretty and as beautiful as they were led to believe when they were, like, you know, 14. They have a crisis of faith. They're kind of reliving that same thing that the Medrash describes as Avram living, right? Same thing. <laughs> 